Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Mind Love Premium, episode 67. Today's episode is all about becoming your true self with the Enneagram. First of all, anybody who says that they had some charmed childhood that was just ideal, idyllic, I would say that they're suffering from what I call reality resistance disorder, right? It's like, no, all of us are recovering children. We we come onto a broken planet. I mean, just open the news and you'll see it, right? There's no such thing as a, a person who hasn't been traumatized. You may not have had capital T trauma, some singular event that upended your world, right? It could have been a million micro traumas. All of us carry wounds. Now, granted, some people have a, a greater burden to bear than other people, but the fact of the matter is, is that all of us have things to work through. Hello, love. If you haven't subscribed yet, hit that cute little button. Subscribing, sharing, and five-star reviews are really a great way to give back if you find this show helpful. They help the show climb the charts, which helps me get even more amazing guests for you. Today, I would love to share a review from Straight Courtney J. She says, real world and practical tips for setting personal boundaries, daily mindfulness, and loving the life you live. Great guests, love the authentic and enlightened conversations, and Melissa's voice is so soothing. Well, thank you so much, Courtney. This review soothed my soul. And now on to the show. Most of my life, I've felt misunderstood. Who knows? Maybe that's why I share so much about what I'm going through on this podcast. Like if I tell you every detail of my life, someone will get me. I think we all have that to some extent. We feel like we're just too complex. So someone else couldn't possibly understand what we're going through which is a shame because belonging is actually one of the most important parts of happiness. What I've found though, is that the more I actually share what I'm going through, or in the words of every Bachelor episode ever, be vulnerable, the more I realize that we're all going through the same shit. Yeah, maybe details are different, but at their core, our problems, our tendencies, our shame is not really that unique. That's also why some of the personality typing systems out there can feel so accurate and why we tend to like them so much. They help us feel understood and they help us feel like we belong or we're not so different after all. I first heard about the Enneagram years ago. A female founder that I really respect told me that it changed her life. So I did an episode on it back in episode 123. At the time, I do remember feeling like it was accurate, but honestly, I was going through so many changes, it felt really difficult to invest my time in the information. You'll hear me talk about that in this interview, but I feel like I'm just now, for the first time, figuring out who I really am. If I were to have taken this test at age 21, I'm not sure who would have been responding to the questions. Me or my demons? I was hopped up on Adderall, severely bulimic, drinking most nights, doing party drugs every other night. It's hard to answer questions honestly when you feel like you have so much to hide. Well, then I did take this test about two years ago when episode 123 aired. I remember thinking, am I answering this based on who I am, who I think I am, who I want to be, or who I'm becoming? 
And I think it was a combination of all four. I had at the time evicted a lot of my demons, so to speak, but I was still drinking fairly often. Yeah, lower quantities, but still at least a glass or two of wine most nights. Basically, even then I wasn't completely free of mind-altering substances, and I was still new to being as clear-headed as I was. I wasn't sure which changes I made were going to be sustainable or if I was faking it to some extent. So I decided to revisit, and wouldn't you know it, I got different results. But these results feel really true to who I am. Last time, my results were a 7 overall, but now clear-minded me is a 4 with 7 and 8 as close seconds. So if you've already explored the Enneagram a little bit, I encourage you to retake the test with a fresh mind and see how your results resonate. While episode 123 talked about the Enneagram and all of the different types, go back and revisit that if you're not familiar with it. This one's going to go deeper into how to work with it to rewrite your narrative. I remember hearing once that if you aren't the hero of your own story, it's time to rewrite it. That stuck with me because it's pretty easy to fall into the mindset that life is happening to you. But we have more power than we give ourselves credit for. And understanding yourself better is the best place to start. Our guest is Ian Cron. He's a best-selling author, psychotherapist, Enneagram teacher, and the host of the podcast Typology. His books include The Enneagram Primer, The Road Back to You, and The Story of You, An Enneagram Journey to Becoming Your True Self. Three key things we will learn are how our childhood narratives create the stories we tell ourselves as adults, how we know if we need to rewrite our narratives, and a four-step process for rewriting your story. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family, or you have a work deadline, or something unexpected comes up, and you're all stressed out, and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's welcome Ian Cron to the show. Melissa, it's great to meet you. So how did you discover the Enneagram and why is it so important to you to where you're pretty much dedicating your life to it? (laughs) (laughs) Among among other things. uh, Yeah, I was in graduate school. I was doing a master's in counseling psychology. And uh, I was, uh, you know, I'm a person interested in uh, spiritual self-reflection and and topics around, you know, spirituality. I went away on a retreat. The retreat center had a library. And I happened upon a, a book about the Enneagram, and I read it in really quick. I just I couldn't stop reading it. I was like, holy smokes, here I am, a grad student in psychology, and I've never seen this before, and it's amazing. And I just was like, why hasn't anyone taught me this? And uh, 
That was, gosh, 1994. Over the course of a few years, you know, I periodically went to workshops and did this and that. I never really dived deeply into it until about 10 years ago. And I just was like, again, amazed at just how um, relevant, actionable, applicable it was and uh, ended up writing a book about it. And here I am. Wow. So you're like an OG Enneagram guy. (laughs) 94. That was before it was trendy. (laughs) Exactly. So for those that aren't familiar with the Enneagram, can you give us just an overview of what it it is and how it's applicable to somebody's life? Sure. So the Enneagram is this amazing, uncannily accurate, ancient personality typing system. It teaches that there are nine basic personality styles in the world one of which we gravitate toward and adopt in childhood as a way to cope, to feel safe, uh, and to navigate the new world of, of relationships, right? These nine types, each of them has an unconscious motivation that powerfully influences how that type predictably and habitually acts, thinks, and feels on a daily basis. So that's a quick 50,000-foot flyby. So are people born these types or is it their environments that kind of molds them to be this type or both? It's both. Yeah. Uh, I get that question a lot. And there are so many forces that uh, create the human personality. You have genetics, you have uh, family, cultural influences, trauma, all kinds of things, right, that come into play. Interestingly, you know, personality is one of the most hotly contested debates in modern psychology. Everybody's got an opinion on, you know, how people become the people they are. And, you know, the way I like to define personality in layman's terms is just how you show up for life. You know, it's, it's you know, I, I try to make things simple for people. You know, I, I love technical psychological language i'm a real nerd about that stuff but for me and i think for you know your everyday person's purposes just saying personality is how i show up for life it's how people expect me to act think and feel on a daily basis because i've been doing it forever that way right and you talk a lot about how our childhood narratives create the stories we tell ourselves as adults And this is something that's like a hot topic for me because I feel Mm. like I've spent the last decade unraveling my childhood narratives. And there's so much that I went through in my teen years and especially 20s that I feel like most of my late 20s and my early 30s were just like fixing the things that I screwed up during those times. But it's interesting how many things go back to like this one moment in childhood that when I think about it, it almost seems insignificant, but I'm like, well, why does that memory stand out so much? And how come I can clearly see series of behaviors that followed that one moment, whether it was something that somebody told me, somebody said about me, a moment that kind of disrupted the way I saw the world. So what does it mean when you think about how our childhood narratives create those stories we tell? How do you understand that? And what is, how does that really affect our lives? Yeah, amazingly so. I mean, it's, I can't say it enough. Like all of us have a story we tell ourselves and others about who we are and how we think the world works. 
And we adopt these narrative, this narrative as a, as a little person in order to make sense of the experiences that we have, right? And everybody needs a story. Everyone needs a narrative. We understand our lives through the lens of story. That's why we say to each other things like, what's your story? Or I turned another page or this chapter of my life. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. we just... Right. And so for us, we, we adopt a story unconsciously. The problem is it helps us make sense of the world in childhood. But when we unconsciously drag it into adulthood, it no longer serves us. That story begins to work against us. And one of the things I realized about the Enneagram and in this new book, I wrote the story of you is I think that there are nine basic stories right now. I'm not saying that, you know, everybody's uh personal life history isn't unique. What I'm saying is that what I have seen over and over again is there are nine kind of archetypal stories that we see over and over again in people's lives. And we need to, if we want to experience transformation, get at the underlying premise of that story and really confront it because it's broken. You know what I mean? It's it's broken. So can I give you a couple of examples of those stories? Oh, yeah, I want all the examples. <laughs> <laughs> okay, see if any of these sound familiar to you. So when we talk about type ones, they're called the improvers. And these people are like honest, they're detail-oriented, self-disciplined, morally heroic people. But the underlying false premise of their story is the belief that the world loves and rewards only the good people and it judges the bad people. And so if you're trapped in the improver story, you try to gain love and a sense of control by, you know, tamping down your anger, meeting your own high internal standards and seeking to perfect yourself, others and the world. In fact, sometimes we used to call these folks the perfectionists. Mm. Okay, tell me about a type seven. What's that narrative? going? Oh, okay. Type sevens, the enthusiasts, right? I think the self-limiting narrative of the seven arises from their unconscious belief that painful thoughts or emotions or situations have to be avoided at all costs. And these folks are charming, they're intelligent, they're fun-loving, they're entertaining, they're really future-focused, optimistic, adventurous, I could go on, but they're really afraid of being trapped in negative feelings from which they can't escape. Right. And so they organize their lives. They, the story of their life has organized itself around. I've got to keep moving. I got to keep going from one escapade, one adventure to the next. And really, it's all in service to uh, avoiding pain because they're worried there won't be anyone there ultimately to support them if they find themselves stuck in pain. Ooh, that resonates on a lot of levels for me. Uh, and I'm curious just how you say the environment can kind of affect what type you are as a child. Do you ever see that people evolve through types over time or is it that childhood experience that really creates your type and then you keep that through your life? Well, according to the Enneagram and people can obviously disagree, but according to traditional teaching of the Enneagram, you are your type for life. However, that doesn't mean that you can't evolve and become a healthier expression of that type in the world, right? And I think part of the journey toward health is 
really looking at the unconscious story that you have carried with you for so long and begin to interrogate it, to begin to question, is this true? Might have been true in childhood, helped me get my needs met, but is it serving me now as an adult? So do you suspect you're a seven? I took a test years ago, but I will say that because I'm always focused on self-growth, anytime I've ever done a personality test of any sort, I find like two years later, my answers are kind of different. And so mm. in the since I've taken that, there's a lot different in my life. Like I don't drink anymore as of like a hundred days ago. I don't, uh, yay, I, yay. I, I know I used to do. I'm in my 20s. I was like a party girl. I thought I was such an extrovert and I am in a lot of ways, but I'm also an empath and I need a lot of time by myself. And I didn't realize that when I was all hopped up on Adderall and all the other things I did <laughs> when I was younger, you know, I was like, of course I want to be around people. Oh yeah, you're drugged up. So, <laughs> And so I'm, I've, uh, the last like Anywhere from, I guess, a hundred days ago to like seven years ago has been the process of unfolding different things like an eating disorder, party drugs, prescription drugs, all those things. And so I'm really discovering who I am in the last mm. few years. And so I don't mm. not necessarily trust things that I've took that many years ago, <laughs> if that makes sense. Sure. You know, I've been in recovery for, for quite some time and I would agree that maybe it's time to go back and, and do one again. Uh, mm -hmm. you, can, you can actually go to my website and take the IEQ-9. It's a really accurate, wonderful test uh, with a very robust report, you know, that, that comes with it. But it, let's say you were a seven. I would begin to interrogate that story. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. is it true that no one would be there to support you if you began to have to deal with some of the darker emotions of life, you know? Like sevens typically are like, they're really good with happy, adventure, fascination, thinking about a future filled with unlimited possibilities, you know? But staying in the present moment is super hard for them, right? It's super hard to say, geez, I'm gonna stay in this moment. And they're afraid of feelings too, like stuck, or routine, or, you know, not being, uh, having a lot of options or escape routes in different situations or relationships or from feelings. And so, again, that might have helped you as a little person. It can be charming as a little person, helps you get your needs met. But how is that story working for you now? Chances are it's not. Definitely. And the way I see that story manifested in my life is, I can take this back to being a really young child and from the point of realizing like my parents don't understand my homework, how am I going to ask for help with this? And mm. that story ended up like, like translating through the rest of my life where I am not good at asking for help. I don't expect people to support me. I'm also an only child. So that's led to that. Like I'm on my own. I used to move whenever things got difficult. It's still something I've got to like stop and be like, you want to move? Can you, can you unpack this a little bit? Can you sit with your feelings? The last few years I've definitely, uh, I meditate a lot. And so that process that I've learned, but this is a learned thing that I've used to cope with the the ways my mind naturally wants to work is Tara Brock has had a big influence on me with her rain meditation of, you know, like really just sitting in those feelings yes. because so much of my life has been numbing it out or trying to escape the feelings, like keeping yeah. busy, being around people, doing drugs, like drinking. So, uh, it's, it's a new process for me, but it might be, as you said, 
that kind of rewriting of the story in a way, uh, learning to be a healthier version of the seven. Absolutely. In the book, The Story of You, I actually give people a four-stage process for rewriting their story. Like the first one is just, it's based on the acronym SOAR. I don't really like acronyms, but I've been in a 12-step recovery community for long enough to know that actually an acronym can periodically save your life. So I've run with them from time to time, right? So the first stage is just to see. And what does that mean? It means to take some time and really look at how the story that you've been inhabiting has affected your life, to really just see it, you know, uh, lay it out there. The, the next step is to own it, which is to see what does it cost you and others that you've been living in this story. So for example, if you were abusing substances, well, that's had impact on more people than just you. And it has had impact on you. And to really own the shadow side of your personality story right? You have to own it. Then to awaken. Uh, I'm so glad, by the way, that you mentioned Tara Brack, because she's someone I love as, as well. And I think so much of what she teaches, Jack Cornfield teaches, and so many other people in that world is the next step, which is to awaken. Like in the moment, can you awaken to the patterns of this story and see them when they launch, right? When they operate. And then the final one is rewrite. You know, like, you are not stuck in that story. I love what Mo Willems says, the, the author. He says, if you find yourself living in the wrong story, leave. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I love that. Um, Dan McAdams, who's a narrative therapist from Northwestern, also has a great quote. He says, all transformation is story transformation. So what we do in life, if you really want to change, if you really want to grow, if you really want to evolve, then you have to, exhume and rewrite the story of your life. And that's what the story of you is, is really all about through the lens of the Enneagram, which is a, a great tool. So when we're on that very first step of, of seeing it, I kind of think that that might be the hardest one for a lot of people because mm. I've realized there, it's like there's groups of people. The, there's like the people that are just blissfully living in their own patterns and it's not blissful. They like think it's bliss. They, they think it's the only way. So they're unwilling to see that there even are patterns. They're just like, this is life. I wake up, I work, I go to bed. And then there's the people that know something's wrong, but they don't really believe that they can get out of it. And then there's the people working towards a better version of themselves. They know that they can change some things, but how do you get from that place of sort of being on autopilot to seeing it? Is it just the willingness of you know, listening to a podcast like this and starting to maybe get an idea of believing that you can change? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, let's face it, our stories, our patterns, our, our, our ways of moving through the world have a trance-like quality. And, and that, that, that trance-like quality, we, we're almost going through life half asleep. You know, we, we keep wondering to ourselves, why do I keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again, even though I may be trying very consciously to stop it? You know what I mean? Usually that's because you're stuck in a broken story, right? You, you, you have not actually dug down deep enough to realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm trapped in a story who's, which, and that story's underlying premise, right, is wrong, Right. So, for example, there's a type on the Enneagram called the helper and the helpers are warm, generous, supportive, kind people. But 
their story is broken because they believe that in order to win the love of others, they have to meet everybody else's needs. They have to help, they have to give, and that they, and unfortunately, they can fall into a pattern of strategic giving, right? With So that's like giving to other people with this silent assumption that others will meet their needs without their having to ask for it, right? So there's like a little bit of a quid pro quo game going on there. Have you ever met someone like this? I had like three people come to mind and it's the worst because it's like, they'll, and more so when I was younger, uh, I, I feel like the people I surround myself with are a little bit <laughs> more self-aware, but there's this one friend that I had in my 20s that she would do something so nice to me and I would actually get a feeling of dread because I knew there were so many strings attached. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. And so one of the things that the Enneagram, and I talk about this in, in the story of you does, is it it gives you empathy for people because they're just trapped in a bad story and they just keep telling it to themselves and others all the time. I'm the helper. I'm the giver. I'll take care of you. I'll meet all your needs. You know, I'll show up with a casserole when the dog dies. I'll do this. I'll do that. Um, it's not a conscious on their part. They're just stuck in the wrong story because here's the deal. Um, from a spiritual perspective, when I mean spiritual, I'm talking about just general spirituality, like, more existential kinds of things. You know, does the universe say that in order to find love in the world, you have to meet everybody else's needs? No, that's a broken story. Now, if you carry that story all your life, it's going to do nothing but wreak havoc on you. So what was, did you find that your biggest story was that ended up affecting your adulthood? Yeah, so I'm a four on the Enneagram, which is the individualist. We're kind of the unicorns of the Enneagram, which we love because we're all about specialness and uniqueness. <laughs> um, we are uh, temperamental, artistic, creative, um, uh, insightful, empathic people who believe that there's something essential missing in our makeup, right, that everybody else seems to have except us. And um, we compensate for this missing piece, which causes a lot of shame, by um, being special and unique, right? It's like if I'm special and unique enough, maybe people will let me belong, you know? Oh, my gosh. See, this sounds exactly like me. Ah. (laughs) I need to go retake this test. (laughs) Oh, okay. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams... 
Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. I want to pop in and tell you about something I'm super excited about. I have long been searching for a way to best engage with all of you in a more meaningful way, and I just may have finally found it. So this week, I want to meet you on the Wisdom app. Just go to the app store and download an app called Wisdom. It has this little purple head with headphones on, so you can't miss it. Then search for me. My username is just Melissa, M-E-L-I-S-S-A. Yep, I totally scored that one. I'll be going live today, Friday, December 17th at 4 p.m. Pacific time. So pause this right now and add that to your calendar. Okay, I absolutely cannot wait to meet some of you. I'll be taking all of your questions about anything. You know that I'm an open book and I'll guide you through my favorite mindfulness practice that you can do anywhere, anytime. This one has been a game changer. I've been using it a lot since I've had my baby because apparently postpartum anxiety is a thing and we'll just have some casual fun getting to know each other like real friends. So again, Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific time, which is today on the Wisdom app. Follow me at Melissa. Can't wait to meet you. Honestly, we all carry features of all these different stories. It's just that there's one that sounds more like us than the others, mm-hmm. you know, uh, really fits. You know, it's like trying on shoes. You know what I mean? You, you're like, OK, these fit, but they're a little tight, you know, or whatever. And then you put your own you put your type of shoes on. You go perfect. There it is. So, you know, in my own life, I became an addict. I became an alcoholic. I you know, ended up in treatment. I ended up, you know what I mean? Like I can just tell you, and why? Because I had this story that there was something missing in me, some kind of fatal flaw that I was carrying around. I didn't know what it was. It felt unnameable, but always present. I I wrestled with depression and melancholy, which is something that fours wrestle with, you know, this kind of pining and yearning, this feeling of if only, if only the past had been different, if only, you know, my parents had been X, if only that Christmas hadn't gone sideways, if, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, this feeling all the time of I'm missing something. And so for the, the, for the four, the story is, you know, if I'm just special and unique, uh, then people will notice me. They'll welcome me into the tribe. I'll start to belong and feel like I'm at ease in the world because I don't feel at ease in the world. And it looks to me like everybody else does feel at ease in the world. And so therefore there's something wrong with me. Now, why is the story broken? Well, because the more special and unique you try to be, the more you're going to be set apart from the tribe. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? In other words, you're not going to realize wholeness that way. So part of the journey for that four is, is to realize that nothing's missing, that you are beautiful. You're not missing a thing. 
that's a much better story than the, than the other one, right? It, that story, the old story of the four, literally, you know, caused me a lot of problems as a younger man. You talk a lot about finding yourself, if you find yourself living in the wrong story, like that quote you mentioned, what are some of the the things that might be happening that, that makes somebody feel like they're living in the wrong story? Like, how do you know if the story you're in isn't the authentic one to you? Because if you're not living in it, do you even know what that authentic story is supposed to be? Oh, yeah. So think of it, like, here's a couple. You look in the rearview mirror of your life and you just see a debris field of broken relationships. Or you keep landing up in the wrong job. Or you tend to stay in relationships far longer than, you know, far beyond their expiration date. Or you're physically, emotionally, and spiritually burned out and you don't know why. Or you, you get angry in ways that seem disproportionate to the crimes. Um, you might react impulsively or, again, disproportionately to people and circumstances instead of responding mindfully to them, Right. And you might just have a nagging suspicion that you're reading off a script someone else handed to you, right? <laughs> and I could go on with this, uh, this list, but these are just sort of indicators or flags that maybe I'm in the wrong story here. Yeah, I have found those little nagging feelings. It's like a lot of times we want like this handbook. This is exactly what it looks like. So this is when you need to leave. But what it really is, is it's that nagging feeling. Do you keep asking yourself, hey, am I drinking too much or would my life be better without alcohol? Do you keep asking yourself, like, is this the right job for me? Is this the right person for me? Whatever those things that keep coming up where you just have a nagging suspicion. That doesn't mean that there's not another side of you. For me, at least, there's always another side of me that's like, nope, this is right because of this. And it's like all this, all of the excuses I've been making for staying in that story that are trying to overpower that nagging suspicion. But it, but I think it's difficult because I was just talking to my cousin about this actually, where I giving up alcohol this time has been very easy for me, but I've had this nagging feeling for a really long time. So I've been slowly cutting back alcohol for years to the point that I didn't necessarily think that my alcohol use at the point that I was like, I'm going to give this up was any worse than somebody next to me. But I'm like, well, why am I thinking about it so much or, or whatever? But for me, it's like I've made so many changes that now I'm all of a sudden in a point in my life where not a lot of my friends even drink. So it was actually a really easy thing to give up. I don't go out anymore. If you would have told me eight years ago, hey, you're going to give up alcohol eventually, so you might as well do it now, it, it would have looked so impossible because I'm like, well, what am I going to do for fun? All my friends drink. I'm used to going out at these times. And my cousin's kind of in a, in a spot like that. <laughs> and so how do you work yourself through that process where you're like, this is going to uproot a lot of things, like maybe even my marriage, maybe my job. Like it's not always an easy transition to make those positive changes in your life. A lot of times at first, it seems like you're making your life worse because so many things are about to fall apart because of this big change. How do you talk yourself through that? How do you give yourself the courage to still do it anyways? Well, it all depends on the pain factor, doesn't it? Or what we call the threshold of tolerance. You know, if if you're finding yourself in a situation where the window of tolerance, you know, it's like everything's fine inside the window, but you find yourself spiking outside the window all the time, that level of discomfort and dissonance is a great motivator for change, 
right? It's like, ugh. it's like, this is costing me, this is giving me more pain than pleasure now. And so, you know, I got to make a change, right? So, you know, I think that all human beings have an innate desire uh, and need to be in a process of transformation of some kind, right? And so we have to listen to our souls. What are they summoning us to, right? What are the feelings and thoughts that are coming up? What are the patterns that we see in our lives that just aren't working for us over and over and over again? And are you just becoming sick and tired of being sick and tired, you know? And that's a sign that maybe it's time to change the story in which we're living and to rewrite one that's life-giving to, because here's the thing, you have agency to change the story. You are not stuck. You have the agency, the freedom, and I would say obligation, if you have loved ones, to change a story or a narrative that doesn't fit you anymore. You know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, that story does not work for me now. You know, And what the story of you, this book does, is it kind of leads you through that process through the lens of the Enneagram. So you get to learn about the Enneagram and you get to learn about changing your narrative. Uh, because, as I said earlier, all transformation is story transformation. So how does the Enneagram help aid someone in transformation? Well, so number one is it can help you identify the story you're living in, right? As I said, there, there are these nine, I think, archetypal narratives that we just see over and over and over. I mean, you've already said to me, I, I, oh, yeah, I know someone who sounds like a one. I know someone who sounds like a two. Oh, maybe a seven, right? And I could go through, or a four, now that I've described that. It's like, oh, that sounds like my story. And then I, I walk them through that sore process. And I say, look, the underlying premise of that story helped you get your needs met as a little person. People may have stroked you for living inside that story. Um, it may have been convenient for them for you to stay in that story. But when you get to be an adult, you get to choose which story you live in, right? And so I can just tell you, for me, the process of rewriting my story was so powerful to be able to sit down and go, you know, Ian, nothing's missing. You know, nothing's missing. Uh, and no emotion is final, which is, you know, fours really struggle with having outsized emotions and a million emotions in the course of one day, right? It's like, dude, no emotion is final, right? This is going to come through like a weather pattern. It's going to blow out, you know, don't panic. So I just learned all kinds of new skills inside the story. And that's what the Enneagram gives you. It's such a wonderful description of each of these types, the stories that they tend to live in and how they can uh, begin to experience real transformation by uprooting the underlying premise of that story. So what if someone doesn't necessarily believe that they had any bad things happen in their childhood, their childhood narrative wasn't a negative one, they didn't experience any trauma, but they're still living in a story that doesn't feel authentic to them? What kinds of things lead to that? And then I almost sometimes think it's easier when it's like, oh yeah, I went through this trauma. So you at least see like that there's a path. But a lot of my friends who haven't really gone through something big, it it's harder for them to change because they don't see like a starting point. Okay, well, let me just push on that. First of all, anybody who says that they had some charmed childhood that was just ideal, idyllic, I would say that they're suffering from what I call reality resistance disorder, right? It's like, no, all of us are recovering children. We we come onto a broken planet. I mean, just open the news, you know, and, and you'll see it, 
right? There's no such thing as a, uh, a person who hasn't been traumatized. You may not have had capital T trauma, some singular event that upended your world, right? It could have been a million micro traumas. You know what I'm saying? Like all of us carry wounds. And uh, so when I meet people who say, oh, you know, I really have, I'm like, oh, I don't know if you're ready yet because you, you haven't maybe cultivated enough self-awareness and honestly depth to be able to see, you know, this is how life is. It was unfair. Oftentimes it was painful. Now, granted, some people have a, a greater burden to bear than other people, but the fact of the matter is, is that all of us have things to work through, right? And so, look, you know, if you're an historian, you feel like, you know, hey, my story is great. It's really working for me. Okay. A lot of times people won't really start to do the work until they hit a wall. You know what I mean? Until they, a child gets sick or a, a partner walks out or they lose a job or all these things happen at once. And they're like, this is crazy. And who I am is not, you know, meeting the moment here. I need to change the story in which I find myself, you know. It could be that a, a person develops some kind of an anxiety disorder or somebody falls into a depression. All kinds of things can trigger this thought. I need to be living in a different story. This one's not working for me. I think one thing that some people have a difficult time with is similar to in horoscopes where they're like, well, I'm not the same as a 12th of people in the world. And, and with the Enneagram, it would be a ninth of people in the world. So how can it be that there's so much uniqueness, but also there's basically like nine different archetypes that we're also living within? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, have you ever been to Home Depot and with somebody who's not very decisive? And they want to find paint. You mean, has anyone ever been to Home Depot with me? (laughs) (laughs) There you go. So so you invite a friend to go to Home Depot because you're trying to find the perfect cranberry red for the bathroom, right, to paint the bathroom. And then your friend says, sure, I got 10 minutes. And then you get there and you realize, oh, my gosh. There are an infinite number of reds in the world. If, if I ever meet Ralph Lauren, I'm going to punch him in the nose. There are too many reds. It's the same thing with the Enneagram and personality types, right? You, there are an infinite number of expressions or colors uh, in each type. So, yes, you, are a per, you do have a personality type, but how it's manifested and how you express it in the world is utterly unique, right? It's, it is like the color spectrum. There are an infinite number of yellows and reds and oranges, and there are an infinite number of ones and twos and fives and sixes. Um, And they may look very different from each other, but the underlying premise of each of their stories is pretty much the same. Where did this come from? You said it's like an ancient person. It's like it's like 16 personalities for our ancestors. But like, how did they discover it? What's the history of it? Well, you know, it goes back about 1700 years the history is kind of, you know, it's a little opaque. You know, it's not entirely simple to, to figure out because nobody wrote it down. We, we think it began with early Christian mystics out in the desert when they were trying to uh, work with, you know, giving spiritual counseling to different people. Then the Sufis got their hands on it. And after that, it was an oral tradition for a long, long time. Modern psychology came into play with it. Uh, and then it was all not only it was only in the 1970s, pretty much, that people actually who had learned it began to write about it. And now, 
even the world of modern psychology and testing have been doing a lot of research on the Enneagram and, and discovering that, wow, this is a really great and accurate tool. So that's a very short rundown of its of its history. But um, I like it because the fact that it is so old. You know what I mean? I, I really love the fact that this system has been, you know, test driven for a long time and has been refined and retooled and refined and retooled uh, until, you know, we have what today is called the modern Enneagram. I really trust things that are older too, just because I'm like, this was before we knew about like sales funnels (laughs) and all of that. So I'm like, yes, what do you have for me? And my ancient ancestors, I'm always uh, seeking that. So I mean, just think about think about the wisdom of the seven deadly sins for a minute, right? Now I'm not making this is not religion; it's spirituality, right? It's like there's a lot of smart stuff in there, you know. It's it's like the Buddhists use it, the Christians use it, you know what I mean? It's like wow, that's old stuff. It is it's perennial. The wisdom of it never goes away. One of my recent rabbit holes was actually the history of religion because I was raised. Christian. And then I moved, when I became an adult, I was like broader spirituality made a lot more sense to me. But I spent a lot of time because I had a little bit of religious trauma. First of all, not believing in any God and then, and then just sort of condemning the religion I was raised in. But I always knew I'd go down this rabbit hole. And what I found so interesting is that there is a ton of evidence that what Jesus was actually trying to teach is similar to what people in broader spirituality now uh, align mm-hmm. with it's it's gnosticism it's kind of finding the god within but that was sort of rewritten when the romans came and killed everyone that dissented <laughs> and so it made me feel so much more confident though in what i'm learning because of that same thing where i'm like well is this just something we're discovering now is this just because we're bored and like our minds go wherever and we want to believe we're the center of our universe or whatever <laughs> the arguments against broader spirituality or what some people even call new age is. But what I'm finding is that throughout history, Buddha, Jesus, so many of these people that have been sort of segmented into their own belief system, if you really look, they're all seeking the same thing. And it's just really finding our own inner power. So there is there is overlap, certainly. You know, I think that actually what most of the great teachers taught is that it's not all about you. It really was about ego reduction. It, it really was um, about, you know, how can we live in such a way that it makes space for others to live in the same world with us, you know? And um, so, yeah, of course, the truth that we find um, similar truths in, in many, many different traditions, right? And, you know, I, I'm not a huge New Age fan, and and I can just simply tell you why. It's really a game for rich people. Poor people have a hard time with the New Age movement. You know, does that make sense? It's like I rarely have ever met a poor person that could really get on board with the New Age. It's you know, expensive books, and I was just in Sedona last week, so I I know what you know. I look at it and think to myself, well, I don't know. Right. It's like, here's a $75,000 crystal and also manifest your first thousand dollars so you can afford this crystal. (laughs) Like I know what you mean. Yeah. I mean, some of that stuff I look at and I kind of go, I don't know. It it sounds like it's really great for upper middle class or upper class white people, but I'm not so sure that it works for everybody, you know, who, you know, people who are really struggling in the world, but things like Buddhism, Christianity, when it's taught well, 
even little children can understand it. You know what I mean? It, it, it's just truth that transcends economics and social class and everything, you know. And sometimes around the new age, I'm like, eh, this seems a little too niche for me here. Um, makes me question it. I agree with you. And I am honestly like on the path of identifying with less. And I think for me, that translates into letting go of the ego because the more things that you're like, well, I am this, it's, that's just, those things are just sort of boosting your own ego in a way. But I'm curious with the Enneagram, I can see how, you know, if you're first discovering it, you might find your story, then you learn how to rewrite your story and and find that healing in those big things. But how do you work with it ongoing when, say, for you, for example, you've been through recovery, you may have rewritten those really deep stories, but as you move through personal growth on a day-to-day basis, how do you come back to the Enneagram to just help you live your best life? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I mentioned the seven deadly sins earlier, and the Enneagram actually taps into that old wisdom you know, each type has what we call a passion. So for example, the passion of the seven is gluttony, meaning that not that it doesn't have to do with food. It has to do with this compulsive gorging themselves all the time on new experiences, new adventures, new ideas, exciting conversations, you know, uh, always thinking about the future in a way that's addictive almost, you know, they're never present oriented. It's always that that life will always be found in the next moment, never in this moment. You know what I mean? And so so each type has a passion that constantly is driving the dysfunctional behaviors of that type, but it also has a virtue that has an antidotal kind of quality to it. So for the seven, it's sobriety, which is not um, necessarily abstinence from mood-altering substances. It has to do with sobriety, meaning living in the moment, not gluttonously pounding new experiences and fun all the time. It's the the ability to stay in the moment, even with uncomfortable, painful feelings, realizing that you do have support in these moments and it's not gonna last forever. And that in fact, the suffering you're experiencing is gonna give you such beautiful depth if you just stay with it. If you just stay with it, let it have its way with you and it'll move on when the time comes, you know? And so, Each of those types has a passion and it has a virtue. And so on a daily basis, you know, um, for me, like self-awareness is the ability to monitor and regulate how you predictably act, think and feel on a regular basis. Right. So if you were a seven and you found yourself scrambling around and like on the Internet, looking up the next adventure, doing whatever, you begin to have enough self-awareness. You're like, okay, what am I doing right now? You know what I'm saying? Like. What am I doing right now? What feeling am I trying to avoid? What anxiety has got me? And I'm just not really, it's it's somewhere just beyond the fence line of awareness. And I really have to look at it and come back to the moment to be sober uh, in spirit, if that makes sense. And so for me, so much of the journey is just watching myself, which is not navel gazing. I'm I'm just always got an eye on what's happening in my inner world. Uh, and, you know, choosing to make new choices based on the new story that I want to live, right? It's like, I can make new choices. I don't have to be stuck in that old pattern anymore because, again, it helped me survive as a kid, but it's killing me as an adult, and I don't, I don't want to live that story anymore. Okay, I feel like a seven again. 
know <laughs> that that even you said gluttony doesn't have to do with food, but that was one of one of the things I had to work through for 10 years. I was very heavily bulimic. And just like I mentioned all these things, people were like, man, you had a lot of different addictions. And I was like, it wasn't necessarily even that. Like some of them were easy to give up. I, I kind of grew out of them or they weren't serving me anymore. Like thankfully I never got addicted to a hardcore drug, even though I was doing them like four nights a week for years. And so... uh but in that, it was like I was always reaching for something, like like always trying to avoid that present state or the emotions that I was feeling or, um, you know, I thought that if I could just power through it and be happy or feel like I wasn't thinking about that, that somehow that was healing or somehow that was me not falling down that rabbit hole when really I was just creating a whole new ditch that I was <laughs> digging with all of the coping yes. mechanisms. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I meet a lot of sevens in the rooms, uh, in the rooms of recovery, in meetings, because what is the most efficient way in the world to change a feeling you don't want to have? Find a chemical. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like you don't, you don't have to go to therapy. You don't have to do this. You don't have to stick with it. You can just like, let's erase it. It doesn't go away. All you've done is wallpaper over it for a while. Postpone um, it, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, until the solution becomes the problem. You know what I mean? And so let's face it. Everybody's got a self, uh, how do I say this? Everybody writes their own treatment plan. You know what I mean? Everybody writes out a prescription at some point. It's like, okay, well, when I don't like this feeling or if I don't like this, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go exercise uh, compulsively or I'm going to eat or I'm going to drink or I'm going to drug or I'm going to get successful at work and I'm going to get a lot of money and then I'll be happy and I won't have to have these feelings, whatever it is. I mean, we all have a treatment plan. And then interestingly, each of the types I think has a treatment plan, you know, which I talk about in the book. And, and so, you know, it's like, well, how's it working for you? I mean, you know, it's like at some point it's like, yeah, okay. I do this over and over again. Doesn't seem to be working. And uh, in fact, it's hurting relationships. It's it's hurting my soul. It's it's hurting um, my work, my vocation, whatever it may be. It's like I got to change that story. Well. Thank you so much for all the wisdom that you've brought to this. I am so excited to go back and redo my Enneagram with like just myself as a clear channel or a, a vessel that's not affected by other things. So I'm really excited for that because even at that time, and I understand that that was the place where I was at that time too. So it, it felt even more like me where I was. I remember looking through the Enneagrams and just un like feeling heard. And it, it almost gave me that sense of belonging. Like I've been craving mm. also my whole life. So for listeners that are interested in learning about their Enneagram type and your, you have multiple books, including a workbook, what, where's the best place for them to connect with you online? Great. Well, there's a couple of ways they can do it. One is my, my last book, The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, is a great primer on the Enneagram. So if you do want to learn about the Enneagram, great place to go. And uh, just as an introductory, and I also think an entertaining read. I mean, so I'm told anyway. The, the, uh, the next book, of course, which drops on December 28th, but it's available for uh, pre-order now, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, go wherever you want. It's called The Story of You, An Enneagram Journey to Becoming Your True Self. They can go to my website, iancron, I-A-N-C-R-O-N.com, and take my IEQ9 
tests. I also have some courses on there. There's a cool new course called Discovering You, which is um, an eight-hour course introducing people to the Enneagram, describing types. And then a more advanced course called Discovering You is on there as well. Um, I have a podcast called Typology, and uh, we've just hit, I think, 15 million downloads. Uh, and it's just a really wonderful audience. And uh, there's a subscription service, you know. And finally, my socials, Ian Morgan Cron, and that's across Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash x67. Your challenge for this week is to take an Enneagram test. You can do so on Ian's website. That one does cost money. There's a lot of free versions online too. I took one from Truity, T-R-U-I-T-Y. And there were a lot of questions, so I do feel like it was pretty accurate. And when I was reading my results, it did feel pretty accurate to me. So this week, I'm actually going to spend time investing in this information because like I said, it's so much easier to invest in something when you feel like it's accurate and it's going to work. And now that I am more in touch with my true self, I feel more confident in going forward with that. So let me know what your results are. I'd love to hear about them on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. Also, I'm looking for more ways to engage with you guys instead of just broadcasting over here behind my mic. So this week, I'm going to be testing out an app called Wisdom. I mentioned it earlier in the episode. Reach out to me on Instagram if you want the info for that. Otherwise, I will have them right here in the show notes. I would love to see you there. It'll be interactive and fun. And let's see if this is the way that I'll be able to interact with you guys in the future. It looks like a really cool app. If you would like to support the show, it is so appreciated more than you know. Mind Love is going through a few transitions. So right now, the best way to support Mind Love is by joining premium at mindlove.com slash premium. It's basically the price of like two coffees a month or even less if you purchase annual. And it really helps the show move forward. It helps with the many costs that go into producing something like Mind Love. So I would love to see you in premium at mindlove.com slash premium. You can also support one of my amazing sponsors or leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week.